Hello, and welcome to The Roll-Up, Leafly's news and culture podcast covering all things cannabis. I'm your host, Bruce Barcott. I'm your co-host, David Schmader. <laughs> I lost my train of thought there. Uh, ben Adlin is actually away on assignment in California this week, so Dave and I will be holding down, uh, holding down the fort. This week, we will be discussing Dr. Oz's cannabis conversion, Ontario's plans for $10 grams. Dave's very excited about that. The science of drugs driving and Las Vegas's decision to hurry up and wait on cannabis lounges. Uh, big news of the week, Dave. Dr. Oz follows in the footsteps of Dr. Sanjay Gupta many, many years later after Gupta and comes out as a defender of medical marijuana uh, on, of all places, Fox and Friends. Uh, let's give a listen. And you also talked about the opioid epidemic, so that's a very important thing. I know Governor Christie was here talking about that. Can, can I say one thing? Actually, I talked about the opioid epidemic, but this, the, what the real story is is the hypocrisy around medical right. marijuana. And just real quickly, medical marijuana, people think it's a gateway drug to, to narcotics. It may be the exit drug to get us out of the narcotic epidemic, but wow. we're, not allowed, we're not allowed to study it because it's a Schedule One drug. And I personally believe it could help. I hadn't heard that before. Uh, check out his interview with Ivanka tomorrow on the Dr. Oz Show. It's on Thursday. Thursday. Yes, Dr. Oz talking about the hypocrisy around medical marijuana. I think, Dave, the, the amazing thing to me was not so much that this was coming from Dr. Oz, you know, one of the uh, famous celebrities who came out of the House of Oprah, but the venue, Fox and Friends. Yeah, that, and Dr. Oz, I have to say, he's, he came out pro-cannabis in 2015. Um, this was, the big shock was this, was the venue, and he's the first person to take our favorite subject, which is cannabis use for opioid addiction, and make it mainstream, and mainstream right. in a stream I don't even swim in on Fox and Friends. Right, right. We've been talking about this as an issue that, you know, six months ago, politicians were laughing about and saying, that's, that's ridiculous, you know, uh, cannabis as a potential tool to help our opioid crisis. And now here's Dr. Oz on Fox and Friends. Fox and Friends, which apparently is one of President Trump's main sources of news, if not only source of news. I mean, seriously, people have done studies on on what he tweets after like an hour after Fox and Friends has ended. And it's very similar to the subject matter that's on the show. I know I'm still waiting for my big Trump tweet about we need to legalize this cannabis for the opioids. Exactly, exactly. You had a story that was very relevant to this this week. You interviewed Philippe Lucas, who is a researcher up in Canada, who has studied this exact issue. Yeah, Philippe Lucas, he's a researcher, and he published a study last month called Rationale for Cannabis-Based Interventions in the Opioid Overdose Crisis. And it was published in the Harm Reduction Journal. And in this study, he lays out just the variety of, of roles that cannabis could play in combating the opioid epidemic. And... It, it was fascinating because it ranges from things um, he, he did this three points it could it could enter the, the story of, of opioid addiction first would be introduction which would be physicians uh, basically prescribing medical cannabis prior to, to prescribing opioids and kind of avoiding the whole mess uh, the second was reduction which are for patients who are successfully using opioids to treat chronic pain um, but are worried about needing to increase their dosages over time and using a supplementary adjunct treatment of cannabis could keep those levels of opioids way more manageable. And then the third part was cessation, which is people who are quitting opioids um, and they they're seeking treatment um, through opioid replacement therapy. And you can potentially introduce cannabis as an adjunct treatment there to increase the success rate of the methadone or the suboxone treatment. So it actually helps people get off drugs too. Yeah, I thought that was interesting because we had done, we've done a number of articles about cannabis as an exit drug, but this three-part 
paradigm that Lucas introduced was really fascinating because it came in and said, yes, it will help the exit process, but really it also will help cut down on the entry process to opioids, and it will cut down on the actual amount of opioids that people are ingesting. Yeah, that, that was his big point, is kind of shifting prescription patterns for physicians that if, I guess right now in states with medical marijuana, medical marijuana is seen as a second or third line um, Right. If, if the first line doesn't work, right. then we'll maybe we'll try medical marijuana. Right. And, and Dr. Lucas's big idea was let's swap that. Let's try the way less harmful medical marijuana first. And if that does not help your chronic pain, let's go to the serious right. poison that might ruin right. your life. Right. <laughs> That's interesting because it, that is the dynamic that has developed over the years with medical marijuana in part because um, especially in people with chronic epileptic conditions, medical marijuana has been seen as the next drug to try after the conventional prescriptions have failed. And that has been sort of the, the reigning story, the, the dominant narrative with medical marijuana. And so we tend to maybe transfer that into other areas. But this is an area, like you say, where you know we maybe should think of it as the first line rather than the second or third line. Yeah. That's, that's the kind of, if there was going to be an exportable moral from Dr. Lucas's study, it would be like, let's just invert the prescription paradigm. Right, right. And it's fascinating to see this moment where research like Dr. Lucas is doing is moving so fast into the mainstream conversation. I mean, I'm not saying that Dr. Oz read Lucas's study, but those studies make a difference. They, they provide the bedrock, the foundation for people's changing attitudes on this subject, you, you have to have some sort of evidence to go on, and those studies are uh, are now providing it. Come on, baby, come on, baby. Let me move into another area that we covered this week uh, in a couple of different stories, and that is regarding drugged driving. Um, Recently, a court found that drunk driving tests were not valid for cannabis or for uh, for drugged driving. There was also somebody at uh, at TechCrunch, I think down in the Bay Area, confronted a presenter who was trying to develop essentially a breathalyzer test for cannabis, for impaired driving with cannabis. And the uh, the uh, the questioner said, "Why are you such a narc?" What's your problem, dude? And it was—I mean—it was funny on its face, but at the second, at the same time, I was like, you know, actually, we we need a reliable guide to impaired driving. Um, we asked a few weeks ago. We asked uh, David Beanstalk, who's a longtime cannabis writer, former editor of High Times, really knows this stuff. Uh, I talked to David. I said, listen. Why don't you? I really want you to find some some uh, some truth on this subject. Go in, look at the studies, look at the science, and come back and tell us what it says. And what he found was some really interesting data. Um, two of the main studies he turned up, and these were uh, National Highway Traffic Safety Administration studies, uh, found that if you have ingested cannabis recently, like within the last half hour, hour or so, you do have an elevated um, elevated risk of crashing your car. Um, we kind of know that that's, that's common sense. Um, but the risk actually is, is not nearly as much as the risk with a number of other things, alcohol, obviously, but texting, using your phone, um, and even having two or more passengers in your car. There were some really interesting studies on this. And I'm, again, David says this a number of times through his article, do not get high and drive. 
period. Don't do it. Don't be a jerk. Please, I, I, I want to be safe on the road. I want my friends and family to be safe on the road. So um, having said that, the risk elevation uh, with all these substances and circumstances was sur- surprising to me. It really was. Yeah, no, it's... It- shocking to hear that right now and <laughs> it made it seem it makes it seem like the drug driving is kind of the the last resort of the anti-cannabis crowd yeah it is it is a, an area of fear i think the drug driving and um obviously teen use or underage use are the two nerves two third rails of this subject and uh we are we're starting to get more data but it's still so difficult partly because we don't have a decent test. I mean, one of the ways that that we're um, testing for cannabis use is essentially the old style test where you pop, you, you test positive if essentially you have used cannabis in the last two or three weeks. I mean, we're, we're testing for uh, metabolites that are still in your system, even though you're completely sober, um, but they register as, as being cannabinoids and, and, um, and they, they pop hot. And that kind of test works well for if, if you're of the sort who wants to do like a job right uh, for right. employment or hiring right to, right they know right. that you maritime, smoked pot in the past yeah, month yeah the maritime industries are notoriously strict on this sort of thing and 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 they test for that and, and that sort of test is is has meaning to them but imagine the same sort of test essentially if you had drunk a glass of wine or had a beer within the last two or three weeks and it showed up positive and society at large labeled you then a drunk and you were drunk driving it's like, that's kind of what we're measuring right now. And that's where I want to yell at the guy who yelled, are you a narc or yeah. stop being a narc? I'm like, hey, I w- if it's a reliable test, I would feel I feel more narked out by the test that would find the pot yeah. I smoked a week ago that is no longer affecting me at all. If there's one that can actually detect impairment, that feels like a step forward. And stop yelling at him. <laughs> one of the things that, that David turned up in his, in his study was uh, that in Colorado, they have a few studies that have found that the incidence of people essentially popping hot for cannabis use in that sense, the metabolite sense, essentially mirrors the percentage use among adults in the general population. In other words, it hovers somewhere between 10 and 13% uh, every year. Some years are higher, some years are lower. But that's kind of what they found, which in a way makes sense. It's like it's if you get a large enough random sample, you're going to find that the percentage of people who use cannabis uh, maybe once a month or twice a month is going to be around, you know, 12 to 13 percent. So not not that surprising. Um, but it when you read headlines that say 13 percent of people on the road pop hot for cannabis, what the general public hears is high drivers, crazily high. They're stoned. They don't know what they're doing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So it so go, go tech crunch guy. And please continue your work to develop a, a, a an accurate and reasonable test for impairment. This was tied to the Massachusetts saying you can't use those roadside tests, right? Right, That's why right, right. The, In that story, this is just something I want to share. Yeah. During his field sobriety test, Gerhard was able to recite a portion of the alphabet and count backwards, but was unable to follow, properly follow instructions for a so-called walk and turn test. Um, this is just the first time I've ever heard of the of like trying to apply the drunk field sobriety test to a high person, and I was always wondering, like, what would catch us up? What, right. <laughs> what would it be? Apparently, oh. following instructions of a walk-and-turn test. So wow. we, maybe we should have, like, weekend seminars on 
yeah, following instructions yeah. on watching. It's funny. I've, I've never been pulled over for for um, uh, for that, so I've never had to do the roadside test. But I've always been a bit fearful because in situations like that, my family will tell you I uh, I seize up. I'm a I'm a nervous person in those situations. Don't ever cross the border with me, Dave, in a car, <laughs> the Canadian border. No, it's not good. Um, but uh, I was I'd be like uh, A B C D F A G H. Just choke. Right. Right. Z Y W X. You know, yeah, yeah. I'm the, I'm the choker at the border. <laughs> hey, uh, speaking of the border, we had uh, an interesting story come out just today on Canada. Or was it Canada or Ontario? It's Ontario. Ontario with a plan to sell grams for ten dollars. Yeah, it's uh, it it's still just kind of in the air. It, it's been addressed like that would be an ideal. That's kind of been pegged as the number that will be low enough to attract people away from the black market. Okay. And when we were talking about $10 grams around here, we were in our Seattle office, half of us were like, hey, sounds great. And then I checked out on Can- on Canada prices and realized, oh, that's pretty middle of the road. And, Is it really? And there's actually, you know, on our Twitter, when I posted the, the news story, there was a lot of stuff like, oh, great, they're selling it at prohibition prices. And the idea of prohibition prices coming back sounds like something wow. we'll be hearing a lot about. Yeah. But as someone in Seattle, I was like, $10 gram, great. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny because we, we saw here in Washington, I think a similar thing in Colorado, where when our first retail stores opened up, uh, grams were outrageously high. They were like $22, $23 a gram because... Partly because the way we, we we rolled it out slowly and it was a bit of a mess, and so our supply was choked off. Um, we had very little supply at first, so prices naturally went higher. Um, but within six months or a year, they came down, found the natural level, and now today, you know, you, Uncle Ike's and others are out there, you know, with seven dollar grams, five dollar grams, this sort of thing. That's um, doorbusters day. <laughs> yeah, and what you mentioned about the the shortage leading to a price increase is like that's what we're really going to see in all these places that do suffer shortages in Canada when the legalization date happens. I, and I haven't heard people really grousing about that yet, but that's that's where it's going to pan out. Is It's coming. Yeah. Nevada just went through this with the opening of their stores on July 1st. Um, hilariously and famously, the governor then declared a bit of a weed emergency in the state. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, this is, this is coming. It's sort of a, now we've seen it often enough that it's really kind of a natural part of the market startup in any retail location. Yeah. And just hearing the government talk about these things that I've always been hearing my weed dealers talk about, about how much is a gram or that, that giant buy in Canada, um, Ontario, uh, no, it was new Brunswick announced this week, announced, um, a $90 million cannabis buy to cover its first year. And the, the, they were talking about it. What's the biggest drug deal? Like people are getting really cute right, about this. It's right. just so funny to it watch. Is, and you know, the other thing is, I on my Twitter feed, I'm still seeing people getting arrested for running storefront dispensaries around Toronto, uh, and I just want to yell at them: Stop arresting people! Stop it! It's. Uh, I mean, we've gotten to a point now in California where municipalities have begun to shut down unlicensed stores as you would shut down any other unlicensed business. In other words, you send a letter, you follow up with a city inspector, um, and then you take steps after that, including you know shutting off utilities or things like this, rather than just going in guns blazing with a flak jacket 
uh, and raiding the place and arresting everybody. And I'm, I'm hoping that Canada reaches that point soon because going in and raiding people and arresting them with guns drawn is ridiculous at this point. It is, and it's going to be a lawyer's game for decades. Of I can only imagine these arrests that happen during the lead-up are going to be challenged or it's just going to be a giant waste of so much time and resources and we have this deadline why don't we just pretend at least you can do is pretend it's decriminalized right right, come on canada listen to me david schmader new brunswick (laughs) just made a 90 million dollar buy finally this week we had news out of las vegas that officials in Clark County, which encompasses Las Vegas, have decided to hold off on their allowance of cannabis lounges. Uh, This was a bit of a a sad trombone note here in the office. Uh, We had been watching this story for a few weeks. It looked like Las Vegas was going to go ahead and somehow license cannabis lounges. The state had told uh, the city that yes, it not exactly legal. It was more like we can't find where it's illegal. <laughs> so we're not saying to do it. We're just telling you we don't think you can't do it. But uh, a couple days ago, the leaders of Clark County decided they're going to wait until Denver does it. It's like, after you, Alphonse, by all <laughs> means, go ahead. And Denver, a couple weeks ago, rolled out their first kind of if we were to have these lounges, this is what you would have to do, and pretty stringent restrictions with how close you can be to anything a kid might enjoy. Um, so, I mean, Denver's on the road, but I think it's pretty funny to be like, go make your mess, Denver, and we'll it's, clean up yeah, after you. Yeah, it's like two people trying to get into an elevator, and, not, and, and each fainting, <laughs> and neither, neither of them actually stepping forward. Um, I mean, nobody, it seems like nobody wants to be the first one. Uh, because of the media attention, because nobody wants to be the first place where this goes wrong. Uh, I mean, we saw this in Colorado and Washington when both states went adult use legal. And essentially most of the smaller towns hung back and said, said, look, Seattle, we're going to let you go first. Denver, you go ahead. And partly that was because those cities actually had the civic infrastructure, the bureaucracy that could handle it. They, could, they had people in place who could license businesses, this sort of thing. Whereas in small towns, it may be like, you know, five farmers sitting around a city council meeting every two weeks. We don't know how to handle this. Um, but in this case, I, I, I don't think that's, the, that's what's going on here. Las Vegas has plenty of infrastructure. I think they just want to uh, not get in trouble. Uh, maybe it's a little bit of fear of the feds, but I feel like that's going away more and more, you know? I guess. the There are so many challenges to marijuana lounges anyway, to cannabis lounges, in that I think we discussed it on a pre... Oh, on a podcast that never aired. Um, <laughs> so I've only visited um, gray market mm-hmm. cannabis lounges, and it sounds great. You think it's going to be exactly like a bar? It's not exactly like a bar. First of all, alcohol makes you talk to strangers and dance with strangers in a way that cannabis makes you have a very personal interior moment. Um, also, it's very smoky and coffee. And I went into one, and I had a wonderful time, and I tried to go into another and thought I was trying to enter a TB ward. It was just coughing and smoking. And it was like, this is like, we're going to have to figure it out. It's not a one for one for bars. It's not as simple as putting out a right. We talked talked about the need for industrial size HVAC units to just clear that, keep that air cleared. Yeah. And just that kind of, I, I mean, that's probably not what, 
Vegas is afraid of, but there's this whole world of how to, not just to make it legal, but how do you make it work and make it pleasant? And mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, that I'm, I can't wait for people to start figuring out. I know, I know. I mean, I've, I've been in a few Amsterdam coffee houses and they've been, uh, they were fine. They weren't places that I would want to spend a huge amount of time. Uh, we actually have a, an article coming out on Leafly very soon about top 10 Amsterdam coffee houses. And I'm, I'm excited to read it because clearly the ones that I have hit have not been top 10. <laughs> Or I'm hoping they're not. I'm hoping there are better ones out there. Um, I think I was in a was it a cannabis culture lounge in Vancouver a year ago or so, and I thought that was nice. It was a it was it was upstairs. The windows were open. They had leather couches. They had volcanoes at different stations. It was it was not what I expected. It was better than I expected. So that was that was nice, you know. But but yeah, I think that we're gonna have to or not weird, but people are gonna have to uh, work out what the the vibe is at these places, what the interior is going to be like. Um, I would, if, and if, if Las Vegas could figure it out within the week, I will be there next weekend and I would love to visit one of your brand new smoking lounges. <laughs> yeah, we're sending, you're, you're going over there next week, right? Yes. Oh my God. I get to see a lot of shows. Yeah. <laughs> so we're sending Dave over to Las Vegas specifically uh, to enjoy a little cannabis uh, in Sin City and attend a number of shows. Uh, tell us what's worth it and what's not. Uh, the annual MJ Biz Conference is the cannabis industry's biggest convention every year. It happens in November in Las Vegas. And so uh, we're hoping that Dave will come back with a report that we can run kind of the week before MJ Biz and get everybody in the industry uh, a little prepared, know how to go. Um, I'm, I'm really hoping that... Uh, is Celine Dion actually... Still having a, have a show there? Is it Brittany? I, I, I am catching J Lo right now. She's oh, my available wow. diva. Really? Mm-hmm. Like in the Caesars uh, performance uh-huh. or something? Yeah. Oh, I think it's Planet Hollywood. Planet Hollywood. Okay. 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 I understand it's big high tech, which is why I was excited oh, about it. Nice. Like, yeah, are you going to do a uh, Cirque du Soleil? Yes, I'm doing the Beatles one because which what Ooh, if, there, if there was nice. a Cirque du Soleil show for a cannabis appreciator, yeah. it's got to be state of the art Beatles remix and then, by George uh, Martin. Terry Fator, Carrot Top. I couldn't. The closest I got, I had to find a family friendly one, and I found a um, a hypnotist magician. Oh my god! Because I had to do an afternoon show. <laughs> and, so is that Circus Circus? I don't know. You let's see if you recognize oh me when god. I'm back. I really want. You, have you been? Have you been in Circus Circus? I, oh yeah, I was raised in Circus. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that's no. My parents were we that no. We just went once. I spent a yeah. lovely weekend. Yeah. It's where you take kids in Vegas. Right. It's right. kind of the Disneyland of Vegas, yeah. which is so depressing. Which is so depressing. <laughs> it really is. Yeah. All right. Well, we look forward to uh, to hearing the report. Um, when you return and I think that's it that'll do it for us this week thank you so much I'm Bruce Barcott I'm David Schmader miss you Ben have a great weekend we'll see you later Ben is a production of Leafly, the world's cannabis information resource. Production assistance from Katie Sewell and Charlize Metcalf. Our theme song is Turn Me On by The Shivas. Be sure and check out their work on iTunes. We survive and thrive on word of mouth. If you enjoy what you hear, subscribe, tell your friends, and tweet a link to the world.
the, what the real story is, is the hypocrisy around medical right. marijuana. 